This is the Austin Life Church podcast. For more information, please visit us at austinlifechurch.com. Hope everybody's doing well. Um, Exodus chapter 6 is where we are going to be in the story of God today. Uh, if you have your Bible, I invite you to turn there. Um, and just so you know, anytime you come, we'll always have Bibles at a table right outside. So if you don't have a Bible, feel free to grab one, bring it in with you. Um, if you don't own one on the way out, feel free to grab one and take it home with you. Uh, we would just love for you to have uh, the Word of God and to be reading this. Um, we believe that we all anchor our lives to something as an ultimate truth. Um, for us, we're going to anchor our lives to the Word of God. Uh, I, I think we're all going to go, go astray at some point. Uh, God's Word never changes, and it is steady. And so we always want to come from God's Word. So Exodus uh, chapter 6, um, second book of the Bible, uh, is where we're going to be today. <clears throat> so have you ever, uh, just thinking as, we think, as I was reading through the context of this, um, it, it starts really in this, these verses in a low and dark uh, spot. Uh, and I was just thinking, like, have you ever felt uh, abandoned or, or just hopeless? You know, that you had a friend you thought was going to come through, uh, and then they, they totally dropped the ball and just bailed on you. Um, or, or a parent that let you down um, just routinely, and, and you kept hoping that there would be something there, and it was never there. Uh, a job that you thought was going to be this fantastic job, and then, and then it's gone. Um, health that was there one day, and the next moment it's not. You're sick, or a family member's sick. Have you, have you ever just had that moment where you just feel hopeless, like you can't seem to, to catch up and get where you're trying to go? Have you ever felt that with God? That, that you were trusting God for something, you were believing God for something, and yet it just seemed it wasn't happening? You know, where you find yourself just really questioning, okay, okay, God, you, you tell me this, but I, I, I'm having a hard time believing that right now. A couple of years ago uh, was the, the lowest point in my life. Um, God was, in his kindness, uh, removing some idols in my, in my heart that I had held on tightly to. Um, and, and it never feels great when God forces open our hand to remove something that we're holding tightly to um, other than God. And so it, it, was, it was a miserable stretch in my life. Uh, and yet I'm confident it was the kindness of the Lord to not leave me there. But, but it was, um, I mean, I, I don't know where the line crosses. I mean, I, I would just say I was depressed. The, the amount of guilt and shame that um, I, I took into my life and that I just couldn't seem to shake, the hurt that I had caused um, my family and myself and our church and just, just people, I just felt like I had disappointed and let down. And, and for me, the, the biggest thing that I, I, I want to run away from is disappointing people. The, the idol of approval. I want, to, I want people to approve of my work. I want people to approve of me. And, and I had dropped the ball, and, and God was removing that from me, and I was just in a dark, dark place, and I couldn't shake it. As much as I cognitively knew what God said, and I cognitively knew that I was forgiven, not only by God, but by friends and by family, as much as I knew that I couldn't forgive myself. I couldn't shake the tormenting that was in my mind and my heart. And so sleepless nights and long days and just miserable, dark stretch of time. And then I'm reading in Mark chapter 4 how the disciples are in this boat and the storm comes and Jesus in an instant calms the storm. 
And then they hit land and this demon-possessed man that no one has been able to, to, to bind, no one has been able to control, the tormenting in his life just runs everything. In an instant, Jesus shows up and the tormenting is healed. And then there's this woman who has been bleeding for over a decade. She spent all her money on, on trying to find a solution and no one, no doctor, no person can figure it out. And she touches the robe of Jesus and in an instant, she's healed. And then there's this, this guy's daughter who dies. She is dead. The greatest impossibility. And Jesus, in a word, raises her to life. And I'm reading that in this moment of darkness. And I'm like, God, wh why not me? If, if you show me that in an instant you can turn the page, why can I not get past this? I've asked you to bring me freedom. I've asked you to calm the tormenting in my soul, and yet here I am at 2.30 in the morning, and I can't get past this. And I just, I just struggled. I just, I, I was, I was really questioned. I, I believed God, but in the moment, he was just a distant being. He was not presently involved in my life, because in Mark 4 and 5, he changes it in an instant. And yet it's not changing in my life. And so I just, I just really questioned. Have you, have you ever had a dark day like that? A dark night, week, month? And if you haven't, praise God. Odds are that day's coming. I don't want to lead you into this you know, idea that everything's going to be perfect. Odds are the bottom's going to fall out at some point. Health is gonna fade, family's gonna get sick, job's gonna get lost, right? And we're gonna be asking God, okay, where, where are you? What's happening? I, I've read it, but I don't feel it so much right now. This is where Moses and Israel was in Exodus chapter six. So if you look at the very end of Exodus chapter five, verses 22 and 23, Moses turns to the Lord and says, O oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? You ever had the boldness to tell God that he's evil? You ever been so hurt, so broken, so hopeless that you're turning to God and you're saying, you're the one at fault? That's where Moses is. Why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? You've got to be kidding me, God. Why did you ever do this? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. <laughs> I'm really grateful that the Bible's honest because I'm like, I get it, I get it, I know what he's saying right here. I'm really grateful that the Bible meets us in our brokenness and in our doubts and our questions. It meets us there and walks us forward. So how do we get to this place? Well, let's recap just real quick how we got to Exodus chapter six. So in the very beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth and everything in it, and he creates it perfect. It's very good. And he speaks life into Adam and Eve and to all humanity, and we're created by God on purpose for a purpose. And that purpose for your life and my life today, here November 3rd, I think, 2018, right? Our purpose is to live in the image of God, to reflect his image with our life, and to make his ways known to the world. That is what we're meant to do today and tomorrow and every day in the history of our life, to reflect his image and to make his ways known.
Well, but in the beginning, Adam and Eve choose to go their own way. God says, hey, follow me and trust me. And Adam and Eve are like, but that looks good over there, and I'm going to go my own way. And so they walk away from God. The Bible calls that sin, choosing to do your own thing rather than trusting and following God. And the punishment of sin is death. It's, it's, it's not just physical death, but it's eternal separation from God. The physical death is just the permanence of that eternal separation, right? That's the consequence of death because God is holy. He can't be in the presence of sin. And so when we sin, we separate ourselves from God. But even then, in the middle of that moment, grace moves near and God makes a promise that one day a son is gonna come and that son is going to defeat Satan and that son is gonna offer life to all who follow. And in that moment, by God's grace, he, he brings a way to cover their guilt by the death of another. He covers their shame by, by making clothes out of, the, out of the death of an animal. And then he separates them from his presence so that redemption has a way in. And in the rest of Genesis, we see God beginning to work this rescue story. He makes a promise with Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, Derek talked about it, that he's going to make through Abraham a family that will bless all the people in the world. That, that God is going to send a son through the line of Abraham that will bless everybody. Well, and we see in Genesis that family begins to grow. And by the end of Genesis, we see the story of Joseph, right? He was the one of 12 sons to Jacob, but he was the favorite son. And so the other brothers are like, hey, let's get rid of this dude because we really can't stand him. And so they're gonna kill him, but then they're like, ah, let's not kill him, let's make a quick buck. And they sell him into slavery, which ends up with Joseph in Egypt. But what they meant for evil, Joseph says, God meant for good. And so through his dark years of slavery and imprisonment, God raises him up to be second in command of all of Egypt. And through that, the rest of Abraham's family, Isaac and Jacob and their sons, they come and they live in Egypt and they flourish. The, the 70 people that move to Egypt grows to a couple million by the time we get to Exodus. So now there's Abraham's family and it looks like that promise is coming to fulfillment. I mean, they're thriving, they're doing really well. But there's a new Pharaoh who is king and he looks at these two million people and instead of seeing friends, he sees a potential threat. And he doesn't wanna give up his power. And so he moves the Israelites, the Hebrew nation into slavery to oppress them, to beat them down and to wear them out. And the ultimate move that he makes is that he's going to eventually just end their, their line, their people. And so he, he, he makes a law that all of the firstborn sons, or all of the, the sons born to a Hebrew family would be thrown into the river and drown. Mass genocide is called for in the nation of Egypt to rid the Israel people. But God brings hope through a baby Moses. The, the, the Hebrew women and the midwives feared the Lord, and so instead of throwing the babies into the river, they just hid the babies. Moses was hidden, and then he was put into a basket and set onto the river to, to survive into a place where Pharaoh's daughter finds him and pulls him out. And now Moses is raised in the house of Pharaoh. So you see God work in this story where what looks like is all lost, God's working good into this and he's bringing something up. And so now you've got Moses in the house of Pharaoh. 
Well, he gets older, and he sees an Egyptian uh, abusing one of his fellow Israelites. And so Moses, uh, being the defender that he is, goes and kills this Egyptian person in order to defend his brother. And so now you have Moses, the murderer, on the run, takes off to flee into Midian so that he's not put to death by Pharaoh for his murder. It's there on the mountainside where he's keeping this as a shepherd that he sees something. And I I love the way it just kind of describes it. He's kind of walking along and he sees a bush on fire that's not burning up. And so he's like, hey, that's new. I'll go check that out. And he goes to check out this. It it literally like kind of talks it that way. Like it caught his eye. Like, oh, let me go see what that is. And God's like, ha ha, I got you. And so God begins to speak through this bush that's on fire but not burning up. And he says, Moses, I'm going to rescue my people. And you're going to be the one that I do it through. I need you to go back to Pharaoh. I realize that you're a fugitive, but I need you to go back and I need you to say, hey, let my two million people go and worship our God. And so Moses is like, no, no, not doing that. Um, God eventually over, overwhelms him and, and takes over. And he's like, hey, you're going to do this. Come on. And he wins the day because God does that. He's God. We're not. He's going to win the day. And he moves Moses back to Egypt. And Moses goes to Pharaoh. And he's like, hey, here's the deal. We need to go worship God, so you need to let us go. And Pharaoh's like, oh, that's a great idea. How about instead I increase the oppression and the work and the load that is on your people? Exodus 5. Are you kidding me, God? You tell me to come back here. I followed your words. I did what you told me to do, and it's only worse. What are you doing? You told us that you were going to make us a great nation to bless all peoples. It was going really well, and then things fell apart. And you come in, and you're like, okay, I got a plan. And now it's worse. What are you doing? That's where we get in Exodus chapter 6. I believe God wants more than anything for us to hear, and not just hear, but know and believe that God's plan is a good plan to rescue us and to restore us into life with him, no matter the circumstance. That no matter what is happening today or a week from now or a year from now, that God is a God who rescues, even when it seems impossible. And so this is what God says to Moses. In verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. I feel like any time, as a parent, anytime I say something like that to my kids, like, oh, now, now you're going to see. Like, it's never going to go well for them, right? Like, it's just, it, yeah, it's fixing to go down. God's like, now you'll see. Like, I brought you to this point of desperation so that now you can actually see what I'm going to do. For with a strong hand, he will send them out. And with a strong hand, he will drive them out of his land. Verse 2, God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I mean, I would underline that in your Bible. I would highlight it. I would circle it. I would draw arrows pointing to it. That phrase, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. The first thing that God wants to do to a broken and hopeless people is remind them who he is. 
Remind them who God is. I think God wants us to know today who he is. He is the Lord. It's almost like when you, when you kind of grab someone, you're like, look at me in the eyes. Like, quit freaking out. Slow down. Look at me. I am the Lord. That's what I think God, most of anything, wants us to get. He is the Lord. Don't look around you at the circumstances. Look at him. He is the Lord. Four times in the next few verses, he says, I am the Lord. In the Hebrew, it's translated, I am Yahweh. Anytime you see the word Lord in all caps, it's translating in English the word Yahweh. Anytime you see the word Lord in all caps, if we're referencing God and it's Lord with a capital L but lowercase O-R-D, that's either the Hebrew word Adonai or Elohim. But when it's all caps, it's the Hebrew word Yahweh. And this is a word that as Jews, they would not write this word in its entirety. They would remove the vowels because they thought that it was too holy of a name to write the word out in its entirety. And they would never speak it. That's why they said Adonai or Elohim. Because they thought that this name, this first name, this personal name of God was too holy for them to speak or to write in its entirety. The word Jehovah is actually taking the Hebrew consonants for Yahweh and pulling in the vowels from Adonai and putting them together. So that's how the word Jehovah came to be. It is an, it is an iteration of the word Yahweh. And so God says, hey, look at me. Listen up. It's broken, it's hopeless, it's a dark day, but I am Yahweh. The names have meaning in the Bible. I don't just throw them around casually. The meaning of a name tells us who God is and how we respond to him. And so what is the meaning of the word Yahweh? Turn back to Exodus chapter 3. So one page previously. So when God is talking to Moses in this bush that's on fire but isn't burning up um, and says, hey, you're going to go back to Egypt and you're going to tell Pharaoh to let my people go. Moses is like, okay, time out. But when I do, they're going to say what God sent you. Because Egyptians worship many gods, the god of the river, the god of the sun, the god of the moon, right? The, the god of, of, um, of fertility, the god of vegetation. Like they worship all kinds of gods. And so they're going to be like, okay, well, which god sent you? And so he's asking him, what's your name? Like how do I introduce you? And God says to Moses in verse 14, God says, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. So Moses is like, hey God, what's your name? And he says, I am who I am. I am sent you. Yahweh sent you. And so the word Yahweh means I am. Yahweh means I am. Now, for us, we say, I am, and we put something on the end of that, right? I am Corey. I am a father. I am a pastor. I am a teacher. I am a doctor. I am a student. I am a mom, right? We have all of these things that tell us who we are and tell people who we are. But anytime we put something on the end of that, we put limits and parameters on who we are. If I am anything, then that means I'm not that over there, right? If I'm here, I'm not out there. So anytime we put something on the end of that, we put limits and parameters on that. And God's like, oh, I don't have any limits. I just am who I am. Like, so you, you, know, you are, and he's like, yep, that's it. Like there, there's no, we don't tell God who he is. 
And so often in our culture, we want to be like, oh, this is the God I love. Like, I love the God of love and mercy and kindness, but the God of wrath and justice? No, no, no. We don't get to do that. He is who he is. We don't get to define who God is. He says, I am who I am. I am who I was. I am who I am. I am who I will be. I am the Lord God. There's no boundaries, no limits, no ceiling, no box that we can put God into and fit him into how we understand. He is who he is. Now, I know that this may sound like, of course, right? But the fact that he is, is so often overlooked by us. Like so often, like, okay, here, yes, I, I get it, and my mind is set on God, but then we walk out and we go through our day and we live as if the I am is not. We live as if this God is not present and real, but he is present. He is alive. He is here. You are there. I am here, and God is here. The God of Exodus chapter 6 is present through the Spirit of God in us. And so often we just go through our, our songs and our worship and our work and our school and our friends as if he's like some distant thing. Like, yeah, I believe in God, but there's not like, he doesn't really impact and affect my life today. But that's not who he is. He is who he is. He's present. He's Yahweh. He is the Lord. Mark Gorham sent us an article that said 90% of Gen Zers, which is up, up to 21, I think. So 90% of teenagers and early 20s um, say that they have regular anxiety in their lives. 90%. And then the Gen X, right? Like that's the one. That, that number is even higher. This just happened to be a study on Gen Z. So why do we have so much anxiety? Because we're trying to go through life as if the I am is maybe, sometimes, but he's, he's here. We lose sight of who God is and that he's real and present and alive and active. The, the first thing that Moses wants to do for these people who are broken and hopeless and desperate is to refix their eyes on the one who is and who's bigger than their situation, and who's bigger than everything else going on in their lives. When we were, uh, man, several years ago, Molly was like two, so she's eight now, so six, that's the math. Um, so about six years ago, we were at a, at a birthday party for some friends, and uh, it was a pool party. And so we show up to their apartment, and Molly, the confident two-year-old she is, right, she sees the hot tub, and it's not one with a ledge. It's like the one that's in the ground, so you kind of step into it. And she literally just kind of runs, and then you just see her go just straight in. Like she's just, she's just gone. And so I wasn't far, and so I make my way over there. And I, I remember visually looking at her, and she's just kind of floating like this under the water, and her eyes are up on mine, and we're, we just kind of locked eyes. It was only like a second or two, right? I didn't like, ah, check this out. Like, I just remember it though, right? And so she's literally, it's underwater, and, and I just reach in and I grab her. But she was, she was scared from that point on to get back in the pool because there was a new reality for her is that the pool was bigger than her, and it was dangerous, and bad things could happen to her in the pool. She could sink in the hot pool. That's what she said for years. Remember that time I almost drowned in the hot pool? I was like, Molly, don't say that around people. Like, it sounds awful, right? And, 
But she had this new reality that this situation was bigger than her. And so she was super hesitant to get in. And so we would, Stephanie and I, we'd get on the edge of the pool where we could stand and we'd say, jump in. Like, we'll catch you. We, we, we won't let you sink. And we just have to look at her and talk to her. And eventually she, she jumped in. Now, why did she jump in? The pool was still bigger. The pool was still dangerous to her. But now there was someone that was bigger than the pool, and she felt confident and safe in their hands. And God just wants to grab us and say, look at me. I am the Lord. I'm bigger than this. I can stand in the water. It's okay. I got you. And so the first thing that God wants to say to a hopeless and broken people is, look at me. I am the Lord. I am who I am. Nothing's going to trump me. Nothing's bigger than me. I made all this. I am the Lord. And then he moves into his promises. He says in verse 4, I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. God speaks, he reminds them of his promise. He says later, I remember my covenant. It's not that God forgot, he's just re-speaking the promise that he made to them. He said, I am gonna get you there. I am gonna take you from A to B. And I know the journey along the way is up and down and, and around and everything and you can't see the end, but I am going to take you to the end. Hebrews chapter six, verse 18 says, it is impossible for God to lie. So when he speaks a promise, it's not a matter of like, ah, if, is God going to come through? It's, it's only when and how. It's not a matter of if, it's, a, it's only when and how. When is God going to fulfill his promise and how is he going to go about doing it? We can trust God's word, his promises, because he cannot lie. If he could lie, if he could say, hey, Genesis 12, Abraham, I'm going to take your people there, but not actually be able to do it, then his name would be I am most of the time. I am sometimes, I am mostly capable, I am good for it in these situations, but his name is simply I am who I am. I'm good for it here, I'm good for it there, I'm good for it over there. There's no situation that my promise does not stand secure. And so God's promises are good to hold on to. His word is true. When he says let there be, there is. When he, when he comes to Mary and he says, hey, Mary, you're going to have a baby, and I know that you're a virgin, but trust me, it's going to happen, there's a baby. And when he says that this, this baby is going to grow to be a man, he's going to be killed on a cross, but don't worry, three days later, he's going to rise from the dead, guess what? Three days later, Jesus walks out the tomb because his words are true. His promises are true. And so when God tells us, I'm never going to leave you or forsake you, I know that it may look dark and crazy, and you may wonder where I am, but I'm there. And when he tells us that he's going to complete the good work he began in us, he's going to complete the good work that he began in us. When he tells us that we don't have to fear, we don't have to fear. When he tells us he's going to give us the words that we need, he's going to give us the words that, he need, that we need. We can trust the promises of God. He's good for it. I am the Lord, and he keeps his word. This huge, transcendent, massive God keeps his promises. 
But not only that, this, I love this part, love this part. Verse five, he keeps his word, but moreover, in addition to that, on top of it all, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel whom the Egyptians hold as slaves. In in chapter two, uh, God says this, during the many days king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and they cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant and God saw the people of Israel and God knew And this God, the I am, the great God who who has control over the wind and the waves, who created all things, who numbered every star and names them each by name, he hears you and he sees you and he knows you. Not, Not just us and the world, but you. Like how is that possible that God knows me? He hears your cries for help. When it's 2.30 in the morning and you can't sleep and the tormenting won't leave, he hears you. And when you're trying to figure out life and everything's falling apart and your relationships are a mess and your future's unknown, God sees you. And when you don't have a clue what's happening in your life, God knows. Luke 12 says that God, he knows the number of hairs on your head. Right, like, or lack thereof, right? Like he knows, he knows when they start to to fall and you're like, ah, you gotta do some math again, God. Like he's on top of that, right? He keeps up with the minute details of my life. Are you kidding me? And so when you're hopeless and you're broken and you're desperate for rescue and a new day, God is the God who says, hey, look at me, I'm the Lord and I keep my promises and my promises are for you. That's incredible news, y'all. Incredibly comforting news that God knows us. So what is it in your life? And where are those points of anxiety? Is it a future? And cry out to God. He hears you. Is it a relationship that you, you long for or that's, that's on the rocks and is a mess? And God sees it. He knows what you desire. God sees, hears, he knows. That's who God is. That's who Yahweh is, the God of the Bible. And there's no one, no one like this God. So that's what God says to a broken and a hopeless and a desperate people. And then he tells them what he's going to do. Verse six, say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. God says, I will step in and rescue you. I will save the day. I will bring a new day where it's darkness, the sun will rise again. Where there's hurt, there will be hope. 
where everything's crumbling, I will rebuild and restore. God is a God who rescues from the broken and hopeless situations of my life, of your life. Not just the Israelites, not just the world, but you and me. He is the God that rescues. That's what Yahweh does. That's what he does for you and for me. That's what he does in Jesus. He sends Jesus to to rescue us from our greatest enemy. See, he sent Moses to rescue them from Egypt, their greatest enemy in the moment. But he sends Jesus to rescue us from our sin, the greatest enemy we are slaves to that separates us from God. Jesus comes to be the deliverer, to bring us up, to set us on a new path, and to give us new life. By faith in Jesus, Jesus is who fixes what we broke. He comes to rescue us. Our God who saves, our God who rescues, who who delivers us through the most impossible circumstance. Jesus is the one who does that. That's who our God is. That's who God is. So what do we do when our circumstances haven't changed? Like what do we do when it's day 10 and then day 100 and then year two and then year four and then we're praying and we're asking and we're like, God, I, I, need, I need you to step in here. What do we do with that? Like, does that mean that God didn't, God's not who he says he was? Did God not rescue or deliver? I think verse seven is, is, is really key for us to understand in, in those questions of the unknown and those questions of things not being filled in that we're asking for. Verse seven is really important. He's going to redeem and to rescue. And he says, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord, your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. You see, God's primary focus is not to rescue us from someone, from something, but to restore us to someone. The the primary rescue that God is bringing is not just from the Egyptians, but is to the Lord, is back into abundance with him. And so we have to remember that, that God's not first and foremost about rescuing us from our circumstance. He's about restoring us to the Savior, about restoring us to his presence, to life with him. Psalm 1611 says that God makes known to us the path of life. In his presence is the fullness of joy. And so God's first concern is that we are walking in his presence. And sometimes that means the circumstances change, and sometimes that means the circumstances stay the same. But his end goal is us and the world walking in his presence. I was reading a biography on Adoniram Judson. And so if I could recommend a book for you, if you want to write this down, it's called Filling Up the Afflictions of Christ by John Piper. It tells three stories of missionaries who laid their lives down for the gospel. I was just absolutely stunned by their faithfulness. But Judson, man, he's, he's, he's in prison after his wife and daughter, or his wife and son had died. He gets news that his father had died four months later, and he says, God, I believe in you, but I just can't feel you. He's in that place of like, are you kidding me? And then it moves forward. The, the gospel, the Bible gets translated into Burmese, and many trust Christ, and he gets married again, and then his second wife dies. He has eight children, and, and it writes in there, five of them live to adulthood. 
I'm like, oh my gosh. And yet he continues and persists into the faith of sharing the gospel. And eventually the Bible is translated and thousands trust Christ. And, and, and he says, it's not a matter of if we're going to die. It's just a matter of are we going to bear fruit while we're doing it. And so it's just sometimes the circumstances change. Sometimes God's going to, to grant you what you're praying for, and sometimes God's not because he's working something better. Because his promise says he's working for our good. But we just have to remember that it's not necessarily the circumstance that God's rescuing us from. He's rescuing us to restore us to him, to someone. That's the end goal. That's the end goal. We've got to keep our eyes ahead or we're gonna get frustrated and discouraged in the moment. He is the Lord, he's present, he's real, he's active, and he rescues us to restore us back to a relationship with him. That's his purpose, that's what he's doing in Exodus chapter six. And so how does God do it? You've probably heard the stories or seen the movie even, right, where you now got the 10 plagues. And I haven't really thought about it, like why 10 plagues? Couldn't he have just done it in one? Like why do you have to go through 10? You know, but. What, what I read recently is that the plagues that he, he brought about into the river or uh, the gnats or to the crops are, it was God really showing that he's better than their gods. Egypt had gods of the river and gods of the, you know, of the sky and gods of the, of the fruit and the vegetables and all those things. And God was just like, hey, you know what? I'm better than them. It's just God flexing his muscle to all the different gods that we tend to worship. God's showing one through nine, hey, I'm better. I'm better. Nothing else is going to live up to me. And so God demonstrates that he's better, and then God, through his love and judgment, sets them free through the 10th plague. And so in the 10th plague, God says that he's going to send his angel of wrath, and the firstborn of every household in Egypt would die. And we read that, and we're like, oh my gosh, are you kidding me? That's wicked. But God's judgment is just. The punishment for sin is death. It's always been that. That what we deserve for rebelling against God is death. And so God says, I'm going to execute my judgment on sin. So anybody living in Egypt is going to have this judgment executed. But God in his grace moves near and makes a way for life to continue. He says, if you will trust me and you'll take a spotless lamb and you'll kill that lamb and, and you'll, you'll put the blood you'll, over the covering of your doorposts, when my angel of wrath comes, I'll pass over your house because the lamb died in your place. You see, from, from Genesis where, where God covered their guilt by the death of another, it's in Exodus that God is going to cover their, their guilt by the death of another that God will let the lamb die in their place. And the blood of the lamb is what marks them as people of faith. And then in John chapter one, John looks at Jesus and he says, that's the lamb of God whose blood is gonna take away the sins of the world. You see, it's in the death of another that God brings freedom. It's in the death of the, the firstborn or for those by faith, the death of the lamb that God brings freedom and moves them into life. And it's in the death of Jesus that our sins can be removed 
and we can be brought back into a relationship with God, the purpose that God created us for. God's, God's a God who rescues, and he does it through the death of another, ultimately Jesus. And so the question is, have you been covered by the blood of Jesus? Have you trusted Christ and let his death be the death in your place? Because according to, according to the Bible, our sin deserves death, but it doesn't have to end that way. Jesus came to die in our place to rescue us from our greatest enemy of sin. Have you trusted Christ to do that? And then because Jesus is alive, because he didn't stay dead, we have the freedom in Christ to live today in an increasing abundance of joy in Christ. For anyone who has trusted Christ, that will never end. One day when we enter heaven, we will never know the end of the increasing abundance of joy in Christ. That, that's a mind-boggling thought. If we have trusted Christ. And so we just want to end today, and I want to invite you to uh, consider God's word. Consider what he says here in Exodus chapter 6. Consider that he is the Lord. Right here, right now, the presence of God is here in an auditorium in Keeling Middle School in Austin, Texas. This God is here. And not just for us to read some words and to maybe have a good feeling, but to engage and encounter the living God in our lives. Do you know him? Genuinely, truly know him. Not, don't, not just know about him, but have your sins been removed by faith in Jesus? And have you received new life by trusting in his resurrection? That's the invitation that God ultimately offers as a God who rescues. Have you trusted him? And if you have, are your eyes fixed on him? Are you setting your thoughts on things above? Are you trusting the God who is? That no matter the circumstance, we can be content in all things through Christ who strengthens us. That's the gift of life in Jesus. So let's pray together. God, we can, we can study and read and look at history and facts and what, what the storyline is all day long. But the bottom line is we need you. We don't need to just know about you. We don't need to just have church figured out. We need you. We need your presence. We need you here and in our lives. And so God, my, my prayer, I'm asking, will you let us taste and see how good you are? Open our eyes to see you and our, and our hearts to believe and trust you and our lives to follow you. Don't leave us the same. Transform us, God. Renew our minds by the message of Christ and the gospel that we can be made new creations. Thanks for tuning in to the Austin Life Church Podcast. To help support us, please take a second to rate and review us on iTunes and visit us at austinlifechurch.com. 